And at the end of the day, there's a really set kind of guidelines for probiotics or organisms with probiotic potential. And in this case, you really want to see that the strains have been tested, right, in, in some meaningful way across a wide range of a population with a defined output. And so what's happened is that the term is usually mistaken for anything that's a bacteria, that's a lactobacillus or a bifidobacterium or a streptococcus that's fermented. And maybe some of those things have a benefit, maybe those things don't, but kind of the next level of probiotic research is really defining the term and saying, hey, this isn't just kind of a supplement category, this is really the introduction of bacteria and it can have tremendous effects and so body mind empowerment get stronger faster smarter quicker friendlier more helpful more driven everything the body needs control your mind welcome to the body mind empowerment podcast i'm your host seamland and our guest today is raja deer raja is a scientist and entrepreneur in the world of microbiome and gut health he's the co-founder of the company seed He's on the editorial board of the journal Microbiome, and he sits on the advisor committee. Raja, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Yeah, I'm uh, kind of glad to have you on the show. And, uh, you know, the world of the microbiome is very fascinating and something that scientists constantly learning new things about. So uh, maybe before we get into that, can you give us like a brief background about your education and uh, how did you get into the world of the microbiome? So the first time I ever heard about the microbiome was in 2006. And it was when I read a paper, a scientific paper, showing that um, when you transplant the microbiome, which just for, for people that aren't familiar with the term, it's the collection of organisms that are in and on the human body, uh, these, these microbes or microscopic organisms. Um, you know, they, if you change from an obese person to a lean person, then their phenotype changes uh, quite rapidly um, and is, is, is wholly reversible through microbiome modulation. And so, uh, you know, I always like to joke that if you want someone to pay attention for something, then just show that it reverses aging or makes them less fat. And all of a sudden it's, uh, it, you know, becomes a, a, a popularized field. But really that was kind of the, the, the first sh shot heard around the world. I, I, did my under my undergraduate studies in biology and at the time the field didn't really exist as a, the microbiome as a field didn't really exist so everything that you hear read um tr all the trials that you see all these things are really less than a decade old and if you think about kind of what happened with the with the genomics revolution it's something that's happening very similarly here where the tools and the technologies are getting a lot more sophisticated and we're kind of at that that corner where we're turning these big data sets into actionable uh, therapies for people. So um, I've, I've been tracking the field for a very long time. My professional career is in, um, in tech transfer and, and um, development. And so things, you know, scale up of bacteria is kind of considered to be um, the highest form of development. So it's not only stabilization, but it's also fermentation cultures. It's also um, how do you uh, get it shelf stable at ambient temperature? How do you make sure that the viability of the organism is maintained? Um, and so before starting Seed, which is now um, uh, our company, it is a microbiome company that's only focused on this world. Um, I obsessed for, for over a decade after school on um, how, to, how to actually grow these organisms. And, and, and we've, we've done a lot of uh, really interesting scale up things so far. Mm, yeah. Where did you get your education from? 
from the University of Southern California. Okay, that's cool. Yeah, like uh, it's a very you know fascinating world, and they used I believe like they used to say that you as a person or a superorganism consist of like 90% of bacteria and only 10% human cells. So, but, but I've seen that the number is kind of skewed more towards like 70% bacteria and now it's like 50 to 60%. So how many like different non-human species live inside us? So by cell count, the most recent estimate has 38 or so, a little over 38 trillion organisms living in the body now most of those cluster quite well into between 100 and 150 different species which underneath the species level you're going to find an inordinate amount of diversity at the strain level so there's a, a lot of diversity um but for the most part what the most interesting findings is that even when you look at in, at populations from all around the world that have never come in contact with it with one another indigenous populations non-modern or non-western populations amazonian tribes hadza um, oftentimes you'll find that you know at the genus level a lot of the, the microbial diversity is it's called conserved uh, so that means that you know there's something really special about the relationship between these organisms and and human biology which has kind of allowed it to be um, a, a mutually symbiotic uh, ecosystem Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, it's, uh, it's it's so funny to think about that your entire body is made of these different trillions of uh, bacteria and other <laughs> other cells. So it's kind of difficult to kind of pinpoint where is the, you know, you as a person actually located in. <laughs> if, uh, yeah, even and, if and yeah. absolutely. And, and maybe maybe to, it's, a, it's a bit of a philosophical point, but um, there's a, a wonderful paper that was written on this a couple of years ago about um, how the microbiome forces a redefinition of self and so it's not really a you know phase two of it or the next level of it was saying like okay well we're just kind of this composite organ organism like a coral reef for example um but the but phase three is even also moving to a, a post binary world meaning just that the organisms and you aren't aren't separate and coexisting it's just all you and so mm. that's um it's a it's a really interesting distinction, but it it kind of pushes the boundaries on on how we define define the human <laughs> the yeah, human yeah. condition. <laughs> yeah, I I also like to think that you as a person are somewhat of a emergent phenomenon from these communication between these uh, life forms like the mitochondria and bacteria, and you're like a collective consciousness in a sense because you can't really find out where where is the I in the midst of this. <laughs> I think that with consciousness, that's going to always be a problem, but. I um <laughs> uh, that's I, another I, 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 whole another rabbit hole. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. But uh, you you mentioned um, diversity. So uh, what does that actually mean? And uh, like, is like more always better, or what's the situation there? Yep. So um, one one thing that I people are pretty shocked when I tell them is that so so yes, diversity in general is inversely related to a number of emergent conditions um oftentimes you'll see a drop in diversity that is associated with chronic illness or conditions and so we know that having a diverse flourishing microbiome um, is a resilient and a stable microbiome so be better i don't want to i don't want to use the word better but i will say stay more stable yes and st in general stability is a good thing mm -hmm. 
but one thing that I say is that, you know, there's, it's kind of like you get the microbiome that you deserve, you know? So if you're, if you're living in a place where you're having over a hundred different odd plants and you're a nomadic culture and there's a high um, introduction of uh, compounds that need a first line defense of detoxification. Um, if there's uh, a lot of indigestible carbohydrates or fiber that you, you need to salvage for energy utilization, then your microbiome is, is reflective of, of your inputs, right? So it's, it's in the early stages of life, you get kind of through vertical and horizontal transmission, as a different set of, you know, a, a set and defined group. Um, but then really it's up to you to sculpt and, and shepherd that community throughout the rest of your life. And it's most variable based on everything from um, your, your lifestyle behaviors to your um, diet uh, your exercise, your genetics, and we're just starting to unravel, you know, w- what all these different community types and healthy states mean. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the time, I'm, at the moment, my position on the subject is that I'm very skeptical of people and companies that say, well, based off of this informa- information, we can say, this is the right microbiome for you, or this is what's personalized or customized for you. And the, the honest truth is that we just don't know, right? Mm-hmm. There's, yeah. there's, there's some features that you can identify that would be useful, but I would really consider those more like party tricks rather than mm-hmm. core functional, um, you know, deep functional analysis that you glean from, from that community. I mean, maybe you can find, for example, the, the, the probably the most serious one that's come up recently that I'm, I, I find the research to be compelling on is uh, the, you know, the bacteria in your gut determine whether you respond to chemotherapy checkpoint inhibitor. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, cancer therapy. So, but again, for, for an otherwise normal, healthy person that's just trying to unravel what's going on in their gut and, and without kind of that type of an intervention, I'm, I'm really hesitant to let microbiome mania hit that type of escape velocity, if you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's almost like, you know, the Wild West <laughs> that uh, it's such a new trend topic and uh, there hasn't been like exact like statements or findings that are kind of consolidated in the science sphere and at the moment it's just like very vague terms and very yeah. vague understanding about uh, how, how does the microbiome actually work and what's specifically healthy etc so exactly uh, so de- defining healthy and unhealthy is the hardest part and i can give you just one really good example from the past month so there's a bacteria that um, called Ackermansia, and it's a it lives in the mucus layer, so it's not one of these 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 common organisms, but it has a very close and intimate relationship with um, the human body, right? Because it it signals and uh, produces short chain fatty acids, and it uh, lives in the mucosa and interacts with immune cells and maintains barrier integrity and all that stuff. And so uh, traditionally we've thought, and I've seen, I've seen wonderful research emerging from Patrice Kinney's lab in Belgium, uh, who's kind of the pioneer of acromancia saying, well, acromancia is inversely associated with metabolic syndrome, um, weight gain, obesity, insulin resistance, this whole class of, you know, the body not responding well um, to like a metabolic challenge mm-hmm. is they believe regulated by the, by this one bug or this bug is part of a cluster and they think that this is the most the the best strategy is to just reintroduce this bug back into people's lives Mm -hmm. but then and 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 when you do that both to rats and mice and humans you see a change right like you do see a change in insulin resistance you see a change in weight um we know that that happens 
But it's the same problem I've always had with these fecal microbiome transplants, which is, well, what if you're transplanting something else, right? Mm -hmm. And so um, a, a collaborator of mine is working in, a, in neuro neurodegenerative disease and particularly in Alzheimer's. And he sent me his data to review um, in advance of the, announcing their uh, trial results. And acromancia is completely elevated, which you would think would be a good thing. But specifically for Alzheimer's and neurodegenerative disease, which you know half the population at some points at risk for, um, you see that you see the inverse. You see that acromancia is elevated. And so, if you just look at these different data sets and cherry pick a disease and try to find a story for an organism, and you, you know you have to really look at this whole thing in the in context. Like maybe your transplant, if you're someone's giving an FMT, you're helping with their Clostridium difficile infection. But how do you know you're not transplanting the Parkinson's for them 20 years from now, right? Mm -hmm. So. Yeah. This, this whole thing is really, um, when you talk about mass microbial modulation, you really want to be careful. And it's very different than the approach that we as a company are taking, which is, you know, we look at features of our attributes of bugs, right? Not the microbiome, not modulating it, not these uh, rare communities, but we actually look at features of bugs that are transient mm -hmm. and then show that when you administer these and you continuously apply these microbes, either orally, topically, ingested, vaginally, depending on the area of research track that we're doing at our company, that it has a defined and reproducible effect across a wide population. And so there's kind of two ways of, of, of approaching microbiome modulation. The one is let's look for features and bugs that are conserved regardless of the host. And the other is let's try to look at large enough data sets and say, without a doubt, this organism is needs to be reintroduced or needs is lost mm -hmm. or is missing or is deficient. And uh, those are just kind of the two approaches right now in the microbiome field. Right. Right. So like a more of a shotgun approach isn't going to be necessarily better of uh, throwing some random bugs into your uh, gut and hoping for the best. In a sense. We just, I mean, look, we just don't know. Like, right. Like right. I, I've seen, I've seen data that a fecal microbiome transplant can uh, fix food allergy, like can repress allergies. I've seen these in autism studies. Like, the, 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 what makes this so hard is because the data is so good that we know it works, but we just don't know all the long-term safety effects yet. So I, 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 put a, I always want to emphasize that there's a caution around moving too fast and breaking things when it comes to this field in particular. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, that, that's, that's true. Uh, so you, you, uh, your company is doing like um, a probiotic supplement and the probiotics themselves are really, you know, the hype nowadays. So can you tell us like what they actually are and are they actually, you know, useful? Yeah, well, I, I wouldn't generalize on probiotics as a whole because I think the term is really, really poorly used. Mm -hmm. um, I'll send you a paper that our chief scientist authored early this year in, in Frontiers in Microbiology um, titled Probiotics, Reiterating What They Are and What They Are Not. And at the end of the day, there's a really set kind of guidelines for probiotics or organisms with probiotic potential. And in this case, you really want to see that the strains have been tested, right, in, in some meaningful way across a wide range of a population with a defined output. And so what's happened is that the term is usually mistaken for anything that's a bacteria, that's a lactobacillus or a bifidobacterium or a streptococcus that's fermented. And maybe some of those things have a benefit maybe those things don't but kind of the next level of probiotic research is really defining the term and saying hey this isn't just kind of a supplement category this is really the introduction of bacteria and 
it can have tremendous effects. And so I can just give you an example of um, some of the, the large scale studies that have been done on strains that we have in our strain bank and in our product, which are, you know, large, large data sets, uh, some of them 300 plus trials, person trials. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we're looking at uh, primarily digest, uh, GI function and digestion. Mm-hmm. And so we were pretty um, amazed when we found out that 60 to 70 million Americans have chronic constipation. Um, and that's just in our country alone. Granted, Americans probably have more constipation because of their lifestyle and levels of stress and overall attitude towards life. But, um, you know, it's, that's, that's insane. That's, that's more than the number of people that have IBS, right? Which is, mm-hmm. uh, which is a medical condition. And so, and then if you layer on people that have uh, unclean bowel movements or irregular bowel movements or um, unease of expulsion, I mean, there's a whole panel of, te- of assays that you look for when you're assessing digestive function. And we know that these, back- these organisms, they go and they signal to the host, um, they induce contractions, they work with the interface of, of the, you know, um, uh, intestinal lumen and, and the epithelial cells. And so there's a really close relationship between these. And that's just the, from a digestive side of things, there's other downstream effects that have been tested like micronutrient production. Mm-hmm. So we have strains that produce B vitamins and including the, the cobalamins and the folates in our, in our product. And that's a really novel localized form of, um, of, of introducing a, 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 you know, rate limiting step in a lot of uh, uh, physiological and biological processes. Um, we have um, a cluster of strains in our product that work on downregulating the inflammatory response in the skin, um, particularly in disruptions that are associated with dermatitis. Um, you know, we, we developed a, a, a series of strains which um, we basically acquired from the Department of Genetics at Harvard Medical School that are strong, strong detox promotions of the detox pathway that results in, the, in kickstarting glutathione production. So, you know, a lot of these terms are, 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 these are processes that most people that, you know, in your audience may be familiar with already, but it's just a, it's just a long way of saying that, you know, you, you have to, there's two sides to it. There's the people that, you know, could benefit from an improvement in performance or in digestion. And that's something that's so, so visceral, right? It's like, it's, it happens one to two times a day and it's that, that it's so regular and it's so, um, it's such an involved experience that most people report experiencing benefits in digestion mm-hmm. um, as, as the reasons why, the, why you would say that the category or the, the field is so hot right now, at least in probiotics. But um, again, we are, our, our pipeline is we started with this product, which was just kind of intended to be, build the most robust, scientifically validated, evidence-based cocktail of microbial strains that, could ha- that have data behind them for why they'd be beneficial to ingest. Mm-hmm. Um, but the rest of our pipeline is built on all kinds of things. Right. So it's, uh, yeah, like for something to be called a probiotic, it has to have like scientific studies proving that it actually works or it has a benefit on the, on the host. Yeah. So otherwise you, otherwise you call it a bacteria product, right? Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. so, so like for instance, kombucha isn't necessarily like a probiotic. <laughs> Kombucha is not a probiotic, and uh, the there's some, I mean there's some very early research that's saying that like some of these indigenous scoby culture, not the commercial ones of course, but that some of these uh, older fermentative cultures um, do do have some sort of you know mild uh, mild effect on 
bloating, for an example, but none of these things have been studied like extensively at the strain level or are, have defined and reproducible production parameters. Um, I mean, when I tell you that every single input is regulated in the production of a single strain, the cell line, where the genetics came from, what's in the genome, what metabolites are being produced, like for probiotics, it's, it's, we, we generate a lot of data, right? So mm-hmm. um, I just want to draw the distinction between fermented foods and probiotics. And some right. fermented foods, if validated the right way, could have probiotic effect. And so um, this isn't to dismiss the entire research behind it. And I hope that we see more, more companies try to define it. But ultimately, what you want to say is, what is your endpoint? What is this going to do? And what is the research base that, that suggests that it will do something in the body? And um, I, I, do, I do still from time to time drink kombucha just because I think it tastes good. I, I, mm. I really like, the, I like sparkling and carbonated uh, right. f- fizzy beverages, For but sure. just low sugar kombucha. But I don't, I don't expect it to have any um, biological effect. Yeah, and uh, most of the, I would imagine most of the kombucha brands are also like pasteurized to a certain extent and heated. So like the, the, the amount of actual live bacteria in them <clears throat> may be somewhat well. lower. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but uh, can you maybe give a b- few examples about uh, these specific strains of bacteria that, you know, like I mentioned, help people to like lose weight? <laughs> because like you said, it's one of the most uh popular topics when it comes to probiotics like weight loss and improved digestion yep so for the the two best right now for metabolic uh kind of overall metabolism is a a back the acromantia bacteria but again it's it's not available on the market yet because it's still undergoing validation studies but that's being developed by uh patrice kniez group in belgium and then there's another uh, organism that's part of that same cluster that's called Eubacterium, EU mm-hmm. bacterium. And, uh, you know, all, what we think is that all of those organisms that are part of this cluster called the Clostridia cluster 14A um, are the ones that are involved in this type of a regulatory effect. So uh, mm-hmm. we think that they produce butyrate and short chain fatty acids uh, that then signal to the host um, and then have systemic effects on our insulin response, which in turn. Um, have an effect on our biomarkers and our um, deposition of fat. So that's kind of the pathway that we believe. But I will caution that there's some really interesting but borderline conflicting uh, research on this. So as I said in the last month, Patrice's group published about acromantia. And in this study, we found that the live organism actually performed less effectively than the dead organism. And so that kind of flips the whole theory upside down on its head, which was, okay, these organisms are alive, they're going into the gut, they're having some fermentative byproducts that are then signaling to the host. So no, now we think that there's a complete, if indeed it is true and they can replicate those results, it's from a completely new mechanism. And it's Mm -hmm. for a way that we have no, we we don't really understand. Mm -hmm. Um, And so there's there's really a lot, I I would say that still leaves to be desired on this, but I I hope that within the next year or two, you know, some of these, some of these studies are replicated in, in larger quantities. But the only thing that I want to add, and it's a little bit more of a philosophical note as well, is that it's not only in modern society is weight loss a good thing, right? <laughs> yeah. um, the, the ability for a microbe to scavenge a nutrient and unlock an additional source of caloric, uh, you know, a, a caloric intake um, in some way across the entire history of the human population would have been an 
a phenomenal thing. Yeah. So we can't, we can't just assume that just because our current values um, aspire for fitness without, or, or leanness without fitness, that somehow that means that that modulation of your microbiome is a good thing. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I would be, I would be hesitant. Um, you know, like there's a, there's in developing countries, we're actually looking at the opposite is mm-hmm. what are some bacteria which actually help bring uh, children from impoverished countries up to weight gain, right? Is, yeah. is what helps, what helps actually scavenge those nutrients a little bit better. So um, it, again, it really, it's, it's interesting to think about that the applic the, the microbe, uh, is really determined by the application. Mm. Yeah, that's that's really a good point in a sense that there are actually some, as I understand, like some strains of bacteria that help to extract more calories from the food <laughs> and yes. uh, make you more, you know, efficient, energy efficient, which is good for survival or if you are actually yeah. starving in in the bush or somewhere. Or and, would be great for or would be great for winter. So we just don't know. Perfect. I mean, the, the the seasonalities are how cyclical this stuff is nobody's really nobody's really studied this yet mm. uh, yeah and, and that's what that's actually like the point where the diversity aspect is also beneficial that uh, a diverse microbiome would enable the person to uh, survive let's say changes in the nutritional environment much better so to say that if your microbiome is able to digest like a whole variety of different foods then you would be ad- more adaptable to the seasonality changes and the uh, movements of the of the animals so you would be like more resilient against like these unexpected events whether that be like famine or uh, just you know random changes in uh, animal movements yep i agree mm-hmm. and um you know it's 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 fascinating when you look at people in the far north that that subsists just off of seal blubber and then you look at the people that are living in tribes and they only have access to tubers and um <laughs> you, you see such dramatic variation and in organisms and and also i think that we were just scratching the surface on this so um one of our advisors scientific advisors published a paper in nature earlier this year um saying that there may be a thousand species that have not yet been categorized or or logged that have come from um human microbiome samples primarily when you expanded out of the western world and started looking at um other civilizations mm-hmm. and so i think i think that we're gonna we're gonna find that this diversity is even even wilder than we think mm-hmm. for sure <laughs> i would i would expect so uh but uh i wanted to talk a little bit about like what what's the reason why in the modern world people have like uh, gut related issues and the microbiome is somewhat weaker in a sense what was the question like why do people suffer from like microbiome related issues in the modern world and society well, I don't think it's micro. So the, I don't know if it's always microbiome is the cause. I think in some instances, microbiome can be the effect. Right. So I think that when the host is, has a overactive response or they're not tolerant, then usually that can repress the diversity of the microbiome, right? Or um, if you are born uh, at a young age and take a lot of antibiotics and that can impair the stability and diversity of that community, um, before it reaches its steady state or a mature steady state. Um, if you have a not diverse intake of dietary nutrients and you're kind of creating the equivalent of monoculture inside of your gut ecosystem, then you can prime or select for organisms that preferentially degrade those foods um, and starve out the rest of them. Um, right. If you weren't breastfed as a child, um, then maybe you never got the right 
or the, the, the earliest start that set your immune system up for, or your, the, the appropriate um, uh, cock, starting cocktail from the transition of out from weaning to, to solid foods. Um, you know, there's, I think that there's, if, if you were born through C-section instead of vaginally, although there's a lot of conflicting evidence on that one today, um, if you, aging, when you age, we know that the diversity goes down in your microbiome and increases your risk of both infection um, but a number of other conditions. So, um, you know, there's a lot of, this is a highly like dynamic environment and it, there's a number of triggers and, and we, we don't know the rest of them. So as I said, we know that the microbiome is disrupted and people that respond or don't respond to cancer therapy. Um, but that's really checkpoint inhibitor therapy is really just working with your immune system. Mm-hmm. So how, how does the immune system really interact deeply with microbes? We don't, we don't know beyond a couple of use cases that we've kind of talked about today. Mm. Yeah. And I like that you're giving, let's say, unclear answers <laughs> because it kind of shows that uh, you're, not, you're, you're not biased with your research and you're not trying to see something that isn't there or uh, vice yeah. versa in a sense that yes. you, you actually understand the kind of complexity of it. And that, that's a good, yeah. good sign of a scientific thinker in a sense. <laughs> and, yeah. I, and I always like to say as well that it's very context dependent and everything is very situational based. So it's never like black and white or clear cut. Yes, it okay. really is. And so, but, but again, that's not, I don't want that to dampen the enthusiasm about the field because I really think that th- we will have therapies. They just might not be microbial. So I'll give you an example. So, you know, for the longest time we thought that Alzheimer's disease, neurodegenerative disease was caused by um, these amyloid Plex. Yeah, it was called. It was caused by these amyloid plaques, right? And so, um, we for the, that was the kind of uh, industry or the academic dogma at the time. And it's it's been around since the '80s. The people that came up with the theory, they there's a lot of pride involved. And but then there's this one researcher at Harvard, uh, Robert Moore, who asked the question. He says, "Well, if amyloid is so destructive." then why is this gene for amyloid production conserved all the way down from these single-celled organisms all the way through evolution to complex multicellular life uh, up to humans? I mean, wouldn't this be something that you would weed out? So from there, there's only two, two places you can go. Is The first, that humans never survived long enough for these plaques to aggregate um, or that it, it, was, it, it had a negative effect on the health but past the point of reproduction and so it was never selected out which is one kind of sociological, sociological response or hypothesis, I should say. And the second was that, well, what if we're just missing something? Because we know that these cluster of genes are associated with the immune system. They're not associated with cognition. They're immune genes. Mm-hmm. And so what if this is a form of the brain's immune system that is protective as a form of kind of trapping of particulates or of metabolites or of microbes, even in some instances themselves? And so one of the things I think we're really proud about is even at, at my company, Seed, we have a research division where we're you know, working with the NIH and doing sequencing trials to find microbes in the brain just to advance basic science. You know? So we really do invest and take time and energy and put them into these large, large, um, very meaningful questions that can fundamentally change the way that we think about treatments or um, advance some of our R&D pipelines or any of that stuff. But um, for instance, now there's a, a company that is in, in almost finished with their phase two trial data and they took this idea and they found that a metabolite from a bacteria in the mouth, a P. gingivalis, is actually a very acute trigger 
um, of the production of these plaque formations. And so they right. created a small molecule that actually blocks and binds to those metabolites right. and prevents them from ever entering to the brain. So now you can think about maybe if it works in 10% or 15 or 20% in Alzheimer's patients, but the mechanism's teased out, that there you, might, you perhaps have a therapy where you, know, you can take it for 10 years before you think that you're, you're at, at risk of this occurring and you just can mechanically block the progression or the cascade that results in that disease, right? Mm-hmm. Or um, we have a very similar research track that we haven't publicly announced, but it's, you know, it's, it's looking along that, that line of thinking. It's how do you um, block the effects that specific microbes have knowing that we probably can't get rid of them um, and we don't want to just blindly transplant some arbitrary um, microbiome from somebody else. But it's it's fascinating, really, to think that you know we we can. I, I'm more interested in these types of interactions. Is what is the, what output is this microbiome community doing, and how is that interacting with the human host, and uh, how can we intervene between those uh, interactions, uh, so, so to speak, to um, to optimize for some health outcome. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. So, and as I understand, there's actually like the microbiome inside the brain to a certain extent. I, I, gosh, this is such a tough one. So <laughs> I don't believe, I don't believe there is. Okay. And I, all I can tell you is that we've looked in, we've tried to replicate the studies that you're referencing that had a lot of, um, a lot of publicity at the end of last year. And if you ask my R and D team, they would say that I'm obsessed about this subject. <laughs> um, but we've got, we've set up multiple experience with young mice, with aged mice, with degenerative mice. We've now looked in primates. We've looked in human tissues. Anything that we find there, I'm pretty sure it's because of contamination. Mm-hmm. Um, that we didn't find anything at all. Okay. We we had the we had the right process. We preserved everything. We looked everywhere. Um, we did tissue samples. We used new te- new sequencing techniques where you can control for genetic. Um, uh, background noise from host DNA, like every single tool or modality that you could have access to that these other researchers didn't by virtue of us working with the National Institute of Health, you know, we've done it. Mm-hmm. And so I can, I can tell you that I will let, we will publish a paper the minute we find something. Um, but we've looked everywhere and okay. we in healthy, in healthy mammals, we have not found bacteria in the brain. And, and, and I'm sorry to say it, but that's in line with what you would expect right like think about it this way humans bacteria evolve so rapidly and so quickly and humans evolve so slowly so why would we have a process in place that allows microbes knowing that in as short as 10 evolution cycles they could develop virulence or they could develop a pathogenicity right Mm -hmm. why would we let some organism get its way into that vital organ system when we know that it's not going to add much value Mm -hmm but it can only cause so much harm. So right. I'm, I'm really hesitant to think that there's a meaningful quantity of microbes in a healthy brain. Mm-hmm. And in fact, I would say that when they are found in the brain, it's usually indicative of, of some sort of um, larger barrier dysfunction. Perhaps it could be an early warning detection system that something's about to break down. Mm-hmm. But that's not what was published at the end of last year by another group. Another group at the end of last year said that they looked in germ-free mice as a control and they found no microbes and then they looked in wild type mice and they found microbes and i replicated that all i can tell you is that i replicated that study with the national institute of health and got completely different results okay right yeah it, it, do, it does make sense in the sense that 
the brain being somewhat of the like a central governor of the entire organism, that would be something that you want to kind of segment away from the rest of the body and uh, kind of have like some form of a barrier between. It's it's not just the brain. I don't think that there's bacteria in the heart. I don't think there's bacteria in the pancreas. I don't think there's bacteria. I mean, I know there are in the lungs, but anything that is this external that that doesn't have an external interface, I find it really hard. Right. But Mm -hmm. again, the question is how, how far do you have to go before it's protected? So a, a counter example to what I'm saying is that we thought the bladder was sterile for the longest time. We thought urine was sterile, sterile. but now we know that the, there is a microbiome in the bladder for sure, hundred mm-hmm. percent. So that's an example of an organ system actually having a microbial presence in meaningful quantities. I think the kidneys in some instances um, have small quantities of protective organisms as well. But I think that whole system um, isn't as vulnerable as kind of your hearts, the heart and the brain, and some of these core organ systems are. I mean, look, we'll see, right? Uh, let's <laughs> yeah. that right that right now there's a huge debate in science right now between two groups that say that there's uh, microbes that colonize the placenta before the inf- infant's born, and the other group saying that we just we that, that uh, literally this is yesterday. I haven't even listened to the Nature podcast on it yet, um, but that they're saying that they looked at five with the perfect control techniques looked at over 500 different people um in infants and placentas and when adjusting or controlling for contamination um they found nothing and this is the largest data set and again it's the exact same thing right like why would you allow a back why would the mother mother's immune system permit a bacteria to enter into into this child i mean that's not the right that, that that's not the right biological terminology because the mother's immune system doesn't really want the baby in there either. But why would the infant's <laughs> immune system um, allow a microbe? I should say. Right. Yeah. So th- there there needs to be some sort of like a fail-safe system, and that's what the gut essentially is like. It's kind of you know absorbs the nutrients that you get from the environment, but it yes. also also makes sure that it's not something dangerous. Or if, if even if it is, then your gut is some is is the first you know point first of line. contact with it yeah absolutely yeah and that, that's that's where usually like the leaky gut and intestinal permeability also kind of sets off this like crazy cascade of events that are linked to these different diseases like uh, you yes. know alzheimer's and weight gain and uh, diabetes and so on and so we know that this barrier is in a very important barrier and if you just asked me what my one of my theories about where this field is heading is I think that we're going to find that, that, that it's not just the gut barrier, but it's the blood-brain barrier. It's the vascular barriers. I mean, when these barriers break down, then you start to find things should, entering to places they should not go. And I think that's the beginning of a... Ver- of course, then there's a number of factors. For, you know, one could argue that... Um, I, I, I haven't fact-checked this yet, but I, so don't, don't take it with a grain of salt, but I heard something from somebody recently that it's like, Either you get Alzheimer's disease or you get cancer, but you usually don't get both, right? Mm-hmm. And so cancer is usually the immune system letting something go undetected and Alzheimer's disease is the immune system being overacted. So I, I, I don't know what to do with that information, but um, it's definitely worth investigating a little bit more. Right. Yeah, that's, that's somewhat fascinating. But what would be maybe some of the biggest causes of leaky gut for example well i think that um there's a number of things so we i can only comment on 
things that we've tested and are working on testing. Um, but everything from ethanol uh, to non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs like like Tylenol and ethanol, by the way, for I'm sure everyone knows is just alcohol. Um, uh, to these non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs, antibiotics, um, antidepressants, um, processed foods, uh, preservatives, um, sugar substitutes. Ex extreme, extreme exercise actually causes a temporary permeability of the gut. Mm -hmm. um, low sleep, low, uh, inconsistent and uh, disruptions of circadian rhythms. Um, and those are just the things that we know about. So it's hard to really pinpoint exactly when this when this occurs oh sorry the last thing i should say is a um, high sugar high fat diet mm -hmm. so like the junk food <laughs> diet of the, the western junk world foods, yeah yeah yes that's that's funny yeah uh, but uh you mentioned um circadian rhythms so uh, as i understand like the both both of them the microbiome and the circadian rhythms are very interconnected like the microbiome yes. is going to modulate the body's circadian clocks and the circadian rhythms you get from the environment is also going to affecting the effect, uh, the activity of the microbiome. I don't know to the extent that the microbiome determines your circadian clocks as much. I think that circadian clocks are probably uh, lean a little bit more genetic than they do environmental. And I consider microbiome to be somewhere in between. Okay. Um, but it certainly does have an input. But But the other is absolutely true that a disrupted circadian rhythm absolutely has an effect on your microbiome. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's true. And have you seen any like research about uh, time restricted eating and uh, the microbiome? It's a really good question. I haven't. I'm I'm going to go investigate this, and I know that it exists, um, but I have not. I, I can't quote a specific study right now, um, other than one, which is that limiting or defining your in having a period of of daily and repetitive fasting primes for an increase in these mucosal organisms because but but again i don't know if it's good or bad mm -hmm. um because then these basically you're starving these organisms for a defined period of time and so they start feeding off your mucosa which we know that right. they do anyways mm -hmm. um but but again then the organisms that go up are like your acromancias and your uh roseburias and your eubacterium so from what we talked about earlier, we would we would assume that this would be a positive effect. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I've also seen something that uh, fasting, like you know, periods of fasting, they don't actually decrease the diversity, but actually promote it. And uh, probably part of the reason I may think is like some form of autophagy that happening, where your gut microbiome is essentially like recycling some of the uh, old dysfunctional co components, and at the same yep. time using it to kind of feed you know yes. the the healthy ones and uh, kind of killing off the bad ones yeah and i saw a really interesting paper from earlier this week as well which was that it's not just bacteria it's viruses too i mean we mm. know that these com these communities coexist with these bacteria phage which are viruses and even when some of these phage are introduced into the ecosystem they have effects on a whole range of organisms by ecosystems theory that even if they're a phage that's only targeted towards one one species for example so i think the whole the whole thing really the right way to think about this is really through the lens of an ecosystem rather than mm -hmm. um, a monotherapy or a single microbe or a keystone species so to speak unless you unless you know that you're um, looking for a very specific outcome right for sure for sure um well what would be maybe some 
key takeaways for people to uh, you know keep in mind when uh, they want to maintain a healthy microbiome and uh, gut health? So the first was a study that came out as a follow-up to the American Gut Project, and it tracked 10,000 people um, over several years. And it found that the greatest predictor of stable microbial communities, including both alpha diversity and beta diversity, which are just one's evenness, the other one's richness, um, was an intake of more than 30 different fruits and vegetables in any given week. And so for people that maybe are... Um, you know, creatures of habit or um, know what they like, for example, and, and that's what they, that's what they kind of go for. Um, I would just encourage people to try new things. I mean, go to farmer's markets, look at all the, look at all this stuff that you can eat. Don't throw out the stalks, don't throw out the leaves. Mm-hmm. Um, if you, if you, something's inedible or doesn't taste good, but it like, Sometimes I, I feel like such a weirdo because I'm just like eyeing these stalks and parts of plants that are non-edible, trying to figure out what might be in there for my microbiome. But um, just throw, throw it in the blender if you want or just, you know, uh, crush it up or uh, take, take, take the un- inedible parts and make a patty out of it. Or I, I don't know, but just <laughs> don't, don't shy away from the chewy, roughy, stalky, um, bitter, you know, parts of, parts of these plants. and and just give it a go and just just yeah. go for it yeah. um that's something like the hunter gatherers will also eat like <laughs> they eat try. the actual tubers and the roots <laughs> try it try it out yeah um the second is that i would say that look this one's going to be a little bit controversial but um i'm so convinced from the research that high consumption of red meat is related to colon cancer um and that it's microbially mediated that I, my recommendation would be, um, I think the carnivore diet's the dumbest thing that I've ever heard about. Um, and so I would, I would urge caution um, in the consumption of animal proteins. We know that these proteins have a very different effect on the microbiome than plant proteins, despite the amino acid uh, composition being for the most part conserved. And we don't know if it's a small molecule. We don't know if it's microbial presence or dead bacteria that are uh, found and now cooked on the meat from the, from the flesh. Um, we don't really know what, quite what the trigger is, but reproducibly time and time again, um, you know, the role of high red meat consumption, um, at least in terms of microbiome modulation, increasing your risk factor for colon cancer seems to be pretty clear. So I, 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 I would say, you know, try to limit it to at max one time per week. Mm-hmm. Um, what, of course, what, we caught, what yeah, about, what about like the other proteins like fish and eggs? I think fish are phenomenal. I think fish, I think fish are some of the fish are among the more perfect foods that are, that exist on earth. Mm-hmm. Um, at the end, the N3 ratio, the, the quantity of N3 fatty acids is, is amazing. The proteins are complete. Um, it doesn't have any, um, you know, these glycans like the NEU 5GC glycan that you find in mammals um, that, that are, uh, you know, can, can trick up the immune system. Um, I mean, they're fish, fish, I think are an incredible, uh, source and I, I eat fish multiple times per week. Um, eggs, eggs, look, I, I eat eggs often and I enjoy eggs and I think that they're healthy to, to my knowledge. The only risk factor from eating eggs is if you have certain bacteria in your body that convert choline into trimethylamine oxide, TMAO. Mm-hmm. And so I think that that's something that's dependent on your microbiome and depending on your genetics. But if you have a history of heart disease or if you have a history of, you know, 
a, a thrombosis or some acute cardiovascular event, um, and you have high levels of circulating trimethylamine oxide as a result, then I would say probably cut down the eggs. But for most people that don't have those conditions, I would say eggs are completely fine and extremely nutritious. Mm -hmm. I would I would also like to think that it 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 depends a lot on. Uh, the particular person's microbiome status, as well as the foods that they're combining together with, so to say, that if they are eating, like, let's say, a bunch of red meat with things like that, you know, with the foods that actually cause damage to the microbiome, like, I don't know, processed grains and sugars, uh, or I don't know, some form of, um, you know, a high amounts of carbohydrates together, then that's going to inevitably have like a much higher degree yes. of damage than just red meat alone on a like yeah. a more more of an ancestral type of diet so it's definitely yeah. very so, context dependent <laughs> absolutely and what i mean by the other thing i would say is that look we know that you know the same groups of people that eat these high tubers also drink like cow's blood mm -hmm. um you know so it's it's it, it's not again these things aren't one size fits all i would just say we know that a high fiber diet can have a rescue effect even in the presence of things that otherwise might cause issues like red meat. So hmm. um, I really, I really think that you see this, the people that have ethically and um, sustainably and uh, you know, like well sure. sourced, so sourced, sourced uh, meats that usually as long as it's part of a balanced diet, then you, you see the risk of the emergence is a lot lower. And you're absolutely right that the, all that data is really muddied. Um, with the confounders, right? Because the same people that are eating uh, McDonald's every day are also eating the other stuff in McDonald's. And so you can't just um, zero in on the red meat consumption as the, as the trigger there. The only, the only smoking gun data that I have seen is particularly on the effect of compounds that are found in, in particular higher quantities in red meat, like carnitine um, and, uh, and, and just uh, CACO2 cell lines and inducing colon cancer. So Again, you, for some people, you can live your whole life and that would never happen. And for other people, it, if you have a risk factor, which it, it comes in your family, then I would say uh, just be mindful of it. You know, so I think these things are also take to it. There, there's, it's, a, it's a delicate and interconnected dance between the host genetics and um, diet and your microbiome. So all three of these things can play a role. Mm -hmm. I've also seen like that fish is actually much higher in TMAO than than other foods so what's the deal with that <laughs> T tma or the one that T you mentioned yeah um so tmao is i don't know if fish has fish can i'll i'll, I'll double check on that for you um but for, in the the pathway that i'm aware of is that choline dietary choline is converted into trimethylamine which is then okay. oxidized into trimethylamine oxide and that's okay, tmao yeah. right right so that's the pathway that I know. Now, if TMA exists or TMAO exists in other sources in higher quantities than choline conversion, then um, that's something that I'll, I'll take a look at. And, and, and or, or people should research if, if you don't, if someone's listening to this before it's made it to the show notes, then just do a Google search on that because I'm not sure about that. But at least in terms of choline, the highest source of choline in the natural world are the yolks of eggs so mm -hmm. that much that that much at least i know right yeah yeah <laughs> i totally agree that the research even if it's there then it's somewhat sometimes it's uh conflictive or at least it's uh missing some key elements such as yep. 
what's the actual like because there isn't like a confounding variable for the person's microbiome in any of these studies and uh, like i would imagine that every person has their own you know unique reaction to any kind of food food depending yeah on, depending on the genetics and the microbiome so <laughs> like yeah people have to just do their own research to a certain extent and uh, yeah experiment and see what works best for them absolutely well, yeah, it's, it's, it's been great uh, talking with you and we could probably go for hours and hours about the microbiome. Uh, but before I ask my last question, uh, where can people learn more about you and your work? Um, before I talk about me and my work, I, I uh, just lo- was looking on PubMed about TMAO and you're right that fish and seafood contain considerable amounts of Finnish TMAO, but are generally accepted as cardioprotective. Mm-hmm. which is a puzzling paradox that uh, no one really has an answer for. So yeah. th- there you go. You're correct, but there's no further answer on that one. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's true. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then uh, regarding your question, yeah, no, thank you for having me. I, was, I, I really enjoyed the talk. If people want to learn more about, um, about the work that we're doing at Seed on, on the microbiome, then they can just go to seed.com um, or seedhealth.com. Um, both, both of them work. If they uh, want to learn more about me, then uh, you can find me at Wild Raja on Instagram. And you should also check out at Seed on Instagram too. You know, we take something which is a really education first approach where we don't just uh, post anything unless we're teaching somebody something about it too. So if you kind of want your daily dose of, um, I do that on my, on my account with, um, you know, evolutionary biology and, and uh, kind of some more, uh, broad science questions and then on our seed account we really focus in on um microbiome science and ways that are really accessible but evidence-based and and integratable into somebody's day-to-day life so um that's where you can find us if you want to learn more and um yeah that's it yeah uh we'll leave all the links in the show notes and uh my last question is uh what's this one piece of advice or habit you wish you adopted sooner that improved your body and your mind Oh gosh, I could I could give you a bunch of them, um, but I think that for for today I would say the importance of sleep, mm-hmm. uh, which just not not even just from a biological perspective. I just mean that it's it's amazing my, my change in productivity and my and deep problem solving. Right, like not just the ability to complete tasks, but all of my good ideas have come either when I've not slept for 24 hours or after a very good night of sleep so um just don't just don't sleep five hours a night either stay up the whole night or get get your full uh get your full rhythm in there but the other thing i would say is also like and again i know we started on a philosophical note so i'm happy to end on a philosophical note which is i think that we unfortunately have a very reductionist approach to health in the west um, where we, you know, are obsessed, obsessed about one particular area and coming from somebody who, who's, I, I understand how hypocritical it sounds because I have given such advice over the past hour. Um, and it is generally the way that science itself works. But at the end of the day, look like there has been people that live on remote islands that have never even heard about the microbiome mm-hmm. that live to a hundred years old and they live happy, healthy, fulfilled lives. And so, I also think that, you know, there's other ways of engineering your life and optimizing for happiness than, than just, you know, kind of the, the biohacking side of things, which granted it's very important to us, but, um, you know, there's, I think there's a little bit, a little bit more to the story about 
what 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 happiness truly is is digital technology moving you closer to connection or making you feel more isolated do you have deep meaningful connections with other people in this world um you know do you manage your stress well um i i think that that's it's kind of a similar to the acromancia story all these things are all strains of the same cluster um that when you really nail it it just kind of changes your outlook towards life which is, has had a tremendous impact in just the way that i engage and interact in the world so um, if that's helpful for somebody, it was, it's been really helpful for me. Hmm. Yeah, it's solid advice, and uh, yeah, people should definitely have a, like a broader perspective on uh, on things, <laughs> even when it comes to things like you know microbiome and uh, general health. Yeah, I mean, look, we're the way I see it is that we all have just a very very finite period of time left, and for some people, it's a little bit less. It, it it's finite, but it's a little bit longer, um, and for other people, it's a little bit less. But um, man. Time is the most important thing, so <laughs> use, yeah, it, use it well. <laughs> that's for sure. Well, yeah. thanks for coming to the podcast. And uh, like, probably we will have to do another episode maybe a few months from now just because there, there's so much more new, new research coming out and uh, there's plenty of yeah. things to talk, talk about. I'm always happy to talk about this. So let's stay in touch and, and um, uh, let me know if any questions come up. If people have any questions, I'm happy to have me or my team answer them. For sure. Well, thanks for coming and uh, I'll see you around. All right, that's it for this episode. If you want to support us, then make sure you leave us a review on iTunes and the other social media platforms. To learn more about the topics that we discussed in this episode, check out the show notes in the description. But other than that, thanks for listening. My name is Seem. Stay tuned for the next episode. Stay empowered.